to begin, um, I've thought a lot about the difference between the two churches in the last days. We'll have the Church of Christ, and of, great, and of course, we'll have the great and abominable church. And the separation between those two churches will become more clear as we progress and get closer to the millennium. And I've thought about what is it exactly that will cause the division to become more clear. And I'm sure there are many things, but recently, I think because I've spoken with so many people lately about it, I think one of the big dividers will be if you decide if you need redemption or not. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. There are many people that believe in God, and they even believe in Jesus, and they love people, and they serve, and they do good things in this world, but they do not believe that they need to be redeemed. They do not believe that there is a need for a redeemer or for an atonement. Reason being is because they think there is no such thing as sin. Now, they all have a different reason for adopting that philosophy, but most of them, in my opinion, it boils down to they don't want to be held accountable to somebody else. They want to make whatever choice they want to make, and they don't want to tell somebody that they were right or wrong. And so they've adopted this, you know, stance in life that I don't need a redeemer because I've not sinned. You know, I decide what's right or wrong for me. What law I follow is up to me. So as you begin to feel the call to go out and preach the doctrine of Christ to the world, you're going to run into this in all of its many forms. And you'll be talk like I said, you'll be talking with people that are good people and they believe in God and they believe in Jesus and they love people and they serve man. And you think that you're on the same page with them. But if you're getting the idea that something's a little bit off, I always ask that question. Do you believe we need a redeemer? And they're always very clear. They say, no, we don't need that. And that reminds me of a scripture that we read with our, with our family tonight. King Lamoni was talking to his servants about Ammon. And he was talking about how he believed in the great spirit. Nevertheless, he believed that whatever they did was fine. And now Ammon was going to you know, come and tell him that's not necessarily the case. Now, I've bounced back and forth myself between those two outlooks. You know, for a period of my life, I believed that I simply, you know, just put me in my own sphere somewhere out in the universe, and I will happily live according to my own law and according to my own rules. I don't want anybody to tell me anything. I'm not trying to be a bad person. I'm not trying to hurt or steal or anything like that. I just want to do my own thing. But I've come to find out, you know, that philosophy, it works well in this world, and you can get pretty far in this world with that philosophy. But what I've learned is that this, this world is just based on lies. It's one lie after another. It is so difficult to get to the truth in a terrestrial realm. Everyone that speaks to you has some sort of, you know, underlying intention that they're not explaining. And everything comes with that. Any article... Any TV show, any movie you watch, any book you read, there's always this underlying, you know, goal that they're trying to achieve that they're not being forthright about. And I got sick of it. I got sick of this world and this constant stirring. And, the, you know, the scriptures refer to that as this great darkness that is around the world. And I wanted out of it. But you can't really get out of it by speaking with other people in the world because you're afraid that they're ju they just have their agenda that they're trying to convince you of. So for me, it was in that frustration that I finally reached out to God. And I wanted to know, you know, what God, what was his answer? What was his truth? Because he's outside of this world. And... I did that literally by praying to him and asking 
for answers to the questions that I was seeking answers for. And he answered me. And in his loving way, he is the one that introduced me to Jesus Christ. Because although he is our father, and although he loves us, and he wants us to return to him, he has proclaimed the only way that we can do that is through his son, Jesus Christ. And so, of course, I began searching out Jesus Christ and figuring out what that meant. And I think a great verse that uh, explains what I'm talking about is in Alma chapter 12, verse 33 and 34. And I'll read that. And it says, but God did call on men in the name of his son, this being the plan of redemption, which was laid, saying, if you will, will repent and harden not your hearts, then will I have mercy upon you through mine only begotten Son. Therefore, whosoever repenteth and hardeneth not his heart, he shall have claim on mercy through mine only begotten Son unto a remission of his sins, and these shall enter into my rest. Now, I always had thought that I understood who the Savior was and who Jesus was, but I didn't. Not until I reached out to God did I begin to understand the role that his son plays in his plan? And it is around that time in my life that I became acquainted with the doctrine of Christ. And these verses do a great job of explaining what that is. The doctrine of Christ is the plan of redemption. If you will repent and harden not your hearts, which means have a broken heart and contrite spirit, then will I have mercy upon you through mine only begotten Son. In other verses, in Alma 32, that mercy is referring to the first comforter. It's referring to when the Lord baptizes us with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Not that he can't have mercy on us in other ways, but ultimately the mercy is that he is redeeming us from our sins. So if you want to get to God, if you want to know the truth about who God is, you must go through his son. And if you go through his son, the first thing you'll realize is how different you are than the son. How far away we are from his glory. And the reason for that is because we sin. We make mistakes. That's just part of the plan. When we decided and accepted to come to this earth is that we were going to make mistakes and every single one of those mistakes causes a distance between us and the Father. And when you go to the Son, you realize how deep that gulf is between us. And as you get to know the Son better, all you're able to do, all you're able to offer Him is your broken heart and contrite spirit. There's nothing else you have. We are lower than the dirt. Now, I hate to say that because that sounds awful, calling us all dirt. But that's the path of redemption. I can see why the people in the great and abominable church will not accept that path. They don't want to think of themselves as low. They want to say, I'm a good person. I'm doing good things. I don't need to go into religion to tell me that I am lower than the dirt. And I get that argument. I've been there. We've all been there. But those of us that are on this call tonight, I would assume that part of the reason you're here is because you have begun to realize also that position that we're in. If you want to know the truth of God, the first thing you realize is you're full of wickedness. You're full of idolatry. You're full of false traditions and false beliefs. But, but we are not left hopeless. Because the Lord has promised that he can overcome all of those things. He can cleanse us. He can become our redeemer. And what joy we all feel because he offers us that redemption. So my feet are currently firmly planted in the church of Christ. In saying with boldness that no, there is sin, there is darkness, there is no way out of that but to be redeemed by the Lord. So my friends who choose the path of the great and abominable church, because it's the easier path, you know, I do my best. 
I do my best to convince them that no, there is such a thing as sin, but there is such a thing as a redeemer. Now, there are many people who say, okay, I believe in Christ. And I believe that I do need redemption. Where do I go from there? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, is how do you turn your belief in Christ into a knowledge of Christ? And the first scripture that I want to start off with is in Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to talk about the parable of the ten virgins. So if you're in your scriptures and want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go you rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the Lord, Wait, afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. If you go to the Joseph Smith Matthew, the Joseph Smith translation of that verse, I know you not is translated as, Ye know me not. Now this sounds like a harsh parable. You know, these virgins didn't quite have the oil. They went to buy some oil. They came back and the Lord shut the door and wouldn't open it for them. But if you're a wise virgin, you understand why that's the case. You understand why you can't give the foolish virgins your oil. It doesn't work like that. In order to fill your lamp with that oil, it requires faith, much faith. Much exercising of faith, the kind that you cannot do in just one day. It can't be done. It takes time to fill your lamp with oil. And if you haven't done that, when the day comes that the marriage door is open and you don't have the oil, and then you come in because you do have the oil and the Lord shuts the door because on those that don't have the oil... There's no getting in. This is the people he says, ye know me not. Now, I don't know if that strikes fear into your hearts. Hopefully it doesn't make you afraid, but hopefully it's more akin to the fear of God. And I hope that thinking about this parable is enough to get you tonight, if you haven't already, to commit to the Lord to get to know him better. Now, the next scripture I'd like to turn to is Doctrine and Covenants 112. If you want to turn there with me. Doctrine and Covenants 112, verse 5. Now, this was a revelation that was given through the prophet Joseph Smith to Thomas B. Marsh, who was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve at the time. And the Lord, you know, wasn't fully pleased with uh, Thomas, but did forgive him. And he commended him to go and warn the world, to go and teach the doctrine of Christ. And in verse 5 of section 112, it says, Contend thou, therefore, morning by morning, and day after day, let the warning voice go forth. And when the night cometh, let not the inhabitants of the earth slumber because of thy speech. Now, what was that warning? Why was the Lord telling Thomas to go and give this warning to the world all day, every day? Spend your time with the twelve, giving this warning to the world. Well, in verse 23, he talks about why. 
Verse 23 of section 112. Verily, verily, I say unto you, darkness covereth the earth, and gross darkness the, darkness the minds of the people, and all flesh has become corrupt before my face. This is why. This is why there's the warning. That darkness that I was talking about earlier, it covers the whole world. All people have become corrupt before his face. And what is that going to lead to? Behold, in verse 24, vengeance, vengeance cometh speedily upon the inhabitants of the earth. A day of wrath, a day of burning, a day of desolation, of weeping, of mourning, of lamentation. And as a whirlwind, it shall come upon all the face of the earth, saith the Lord. And this is where it gets interesting. And upon my house shall it begin. And from my house shall it go forth, saith the Lord. Why does this destruction begin upon his house? Who is his house? Peter asked the same question. Or he thought about the same question. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. And it says, Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, which I think is how Peter defines the house of God, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Same thing. The judgment begins on the Lord's house. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? He takes a different angle on that. He's like, man, can you imagine if that destruction starts on the Christians, then how bad is it going to be on the other people? But he says something very interesting in verse 18. If the righteous scarcely be saved. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean all of the Christians are not going to be saved? Turn back to Doctrine and Covenants section 112. Why does it start on the Lord's house? I think verse 26 gives us a clue. First among those among you, saith the Lord, this is the destruction that starts on his house. It starts first among those among you, saith the Lord, who have professed to know my name and have not known me and have blasphemed against me in the midst of my house, saith the Lord. Why do you think it starts on his house? It starts on his house because of the blasphemers, which apparently is not a good thing. On the people who profess to know the name of the Lord and to act in his name, but they do not know him. Now, this was pretty heavy, these first two scriptures. Because I'm saying to all of us tonight, and I'm included number one on this list, are we walking around professing that we know the name of the Lord and we don't really know him? Because if that's the case and we remain in that state, we'll be the first to be destroyed. What does it mean to know, to know that Jesus Christ is the Lord? Well, I'll give you some experiences from my life of what it, what it means to know. I served a mission for the LDS Church in Athens, Greece for two years. And when you come home from your mission, as is the custom, you give a report to the stake presidency and the, and the high counselors. And my parents were there. So I went into the big room. I was a young kid, 21. And to give my report about my mission, I did not have a very successful mission compared to other people's missions. The average baptism rate per missionary in my mission after two years was 0.5. It was a low baptizing mission. So I had to stand and give the report. And here's, and here's how it went. I said, brethren, 
I stand before you today to say that after two years in Greece, I learned one important fact, and that is that the continent of Australia does not exist. And they were like, what? <laughs> I said all of the kangaroos and all of the, you know, all of the, the Sydney Opera House, all of that stuff that you've seen in pictures, none of that is real. It's all been made up. And man, they were giving me the craziest looks ever. You know, they thought I was a great fool. And then is when I dropped the hammer. I said, the way that you're all looking at me right now, the way that you're treating me right now, is how I was treated the entire last two years of my life. I went to Greece and told these people that their church was wrong and that my church was right. And they looked at me like I was a bug. <laughs> and then I kind of laughed to, uh, you know, take down some of the tension that was in the room. It was, it was an epic, uh, it was an epic homecoming uh, review. I'm sure that they won't forget that one. But the point that I was making was an important point. How do you know that Australia exists? Have you been there? No. So what have you read some books, seen some pictures, seen some movies, maybe talked to somebody that's been in Australia? How do you know that it exists if you haven't been there? So at that age, I had already recognized there's this difference between saying something is true and really knowing if it is true or not. Now let's turn, if you will, back to Matthew and relate this to whether you know the Savior is real or not. Matthew chapter 26, verse 30 through 35. So after the Last Supper, the Lord took the disciples and they went to the Mount of Olives. This is verse 30 of St. Matthew chapter 26. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. What does that mean, that all of you are going to be offended because of me this night? They had all followed the Lord for how many years? They knew him. They spent time with him. They talked with him. They learned at his feet. And yet the Lord was saying, you'll be offended of me this night. Verse 32, but after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter spoke up and said, though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended of ye. Of ye. Lord, I would never do that. I would never be offended to be seen with you. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. And here's the important sentence. Likewise also said all the disciples, Lord, we would never deny you. Well, we turn the page in verse 47. After the Lord suffered the greatest of all misery you could possibly suffer in the garden, then everybody got to see who the betrayer was. It was Judas in verse 47. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. They came to get him, to arrest him, and to try him. And I think it's really interesting what the Lord said to them in verse 45 or verse 55. In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. What's the difference now between them? We've talked, we've spent time, and now you're coming to arrest me? Verse 56, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then what does it say? Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. 
when the going got tough, they bailed on him. These men who knew him, they bailed on him. <coughs> now Peter followed close behind, and when the Lord was taken to the palace and questioned before Caiaphas, he sat in the back along with the servants to see what was happening. And Jesus wouldn't speak as they accused him until they asked if he was the son of God. And he said, yes. <clears throat> and for that, he was accused of blasphemy and sentenced to death. And at this time, they did spit in his face and buffeted him and others smote him with the palms of their hands. That's verse 67. So he's getting accused unfairly and he's sentenced to death. And where are the disciples? Where are they to stand up and defend him? They're not there. And then three different people during that asked Peter, aren't you with him? And he denied the Lord three times. Now, I'm not saying what Peter did is anywhere close to what Judas did. But Peter, what was going through his mind when he denied the Lord? To save himself, perhaps? What was going through Judas's mind to sell the Lord out? Was it for money? And where were the other ten? Now, Peter knew instantly what he had done. And he wept bitterly because of it. Judas also knew what he had done. And in the next chapter, 27, verse 3, then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what do we care? That's your problem. Then Judas cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So all of the twelve turned on him in his moment of greatest need. Peter denied him three times and Judas sold him out. But Peter and Judas recognized what they had done. But the other ten, I mean, if you turn over into chapter 28, when the Lord is resurrected and returns to them, in verse 17, and it says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some still doubted. How is this possible? I mean, what hope do we have? We read the scriptures. That's not the same as being at the feet of Jesus and learning from him. And yet they didn't know the Savior. They didn't know him well enough to stand by him when things got hard. They didn't know him. To continue on with this idea, I want to share another experience I had 20 years ago. I was sitting in the temple, and it was a wonderful day. And I was feeling the Spirit super strong. Like just basking in the warmth and the light of the Spirit. Grateful to everything that Heavenly Father has ever done for us. And I heard a voice invite me to come unto the Savior. And my reaction was, no. I said, I'm not ready. Biggest mistake of my life. Immediately I lost the spirit. I was dark. I was empty. Confused. Depressed. What had happened? It took me a couple of days to figure out it's because I rejected the invitation of the spirit. That I lost the spirit. So I promised, Lord, if you ever see fit to give me an invite like that again, even if I don't know if I can do it or not, I will accept. And then I will try my hardest to fulfill whatever you invited me to do. Now, you've got to understand, I do not use the word no casually. My entire mission, as I testified of the Book of Mormon, and of Jesus Christ, I never said the words, I know. I said the words, 
I believe. I was very careful about that because I didn't want to be the person that said I know if I didn't really know. Six months after that initial invitation that I had turned down, I received another invitation from the Spirit. The Spirit said, the next time you bear your testimony about the Book of Mormon, say, I know. I had a flood of doubt and fear come into my mind instantly. I put it to the side and said, yes, I will do it. One, late, one week later was fast and testimony meeting for me. As soon as everything was done, I was the first one up. I bore a short, sweet, simple testimony, and I finished and said, I know the Book of Mormon is true. And in that moment, I had a baptism of fire right there at the pulpit. I don't know how that all worked. I didn't doubt. I didn't doubt. The Book of Mormon, I had read it plenty. I had testified of it. I had felt the Spirit. I knew that applying the teachings in it, what that would do for your life. But I never said I know. And when I accepted that invitation of the Spirit to say I know, the Spirit confirmed that I indeed did know. That it was true. Now, at that point in my life, that's the only thing I could say that I know is true. And that's wonderful. I'm glad to have that testimony. But what it made me realize is I didn't know that Jesus Christ was our Savior. I didn't know who Jesus Christ was. That was 20 years ago. And only recently, only recently have I even began to understand how to come to know who the Savior really is. And that didn't happen until I become acquainted with the doctrine of Christ. And I didn't get introduced to the doctrine of Christ until I called out to the Father, seeking for the truth. And then I had to learn the hard way, like all of you, that to get to the truth, you're going to have to put your broken heart and contrite spirit on the altar and give him everything. To prove that you want the truth more than anything else. Now, I believed in Christ, but I didn't know who Christ was. I knew him pretty well, like everybody else who studies and teaches and testifies in his name. But I didn't know him any better than Peter or Judas or any of the other ten, who when the going went rough, bailed and I can see to get to the truth that I'm seeking I have to be redeemed I have to be cleaned clean from the sins that I've committed that keep me from Heavenly Father's presence there is no other way therefore to be redeemed I have to come to know who Jesus Christ is now how do we do that the scriptures are full of the how to do that. But I want to talk about Ether chapter 12 tonight. I can't get past Ether chapter 12. There's too much good in Ether chapter 12. Listen for the word as I read these first few verses. Listen for the word things. And see if you can figure out what Ether and Moroni are referring to when they say the word things. And we'll go through verse 1 through verse 9. Came to pass in the days of Ether, we're in the days of Coriantumr, and Coriantumr was king over all the land. And Ether was a prophet of the Lord. Wherefore, Ether came forth in the days of Coriantumr and began to prophesy unto the people. For he could not be restrained because of the Spirit of the Lord which was in him. Verse 3, For he did cry from the morning, even until the going down of the sun, exhorting the people to believe in God under repentance, lest they should be destroyed, saying unto them that by faith all things are fulfilled. 
The time of Ether's life was not a good time to be alive, especially not a good time to be a prophet. He preached from sun up to sundown every day until they cast him out from among them. They did not listen to one word he taught. Not one person listened to him. And as a result, their nation was completely destroyed. So why did Ether have to go through all of that if no one was going to listen to him? Well, I think a large part of that answer was so that we could have his writings today, so that he could be speaking to us. Now, verse 3 is the one I want to hone in on. Keeping in mind two things. First, when the word things is brought up. And second, How do we come to know Jesus Christ? Not just believe, but know. He exhorted the people in verse 3 to believe in God unto repentance. It wasn't just to believe in God. It was to believe in God unto repentance. That's a different level of belief. That's a belief that requires you to take an action. And that action is to seek Revelation from God on what you need to do, on the steps you need to take. And that is how faith by faith all things are fulfilled. Very simple concept. I think everybody on here understands that concept, but I'll go through it again just in case you don't. How do we come to know the Lord? We seek revelation from Him. And whatever he tells us, we receive it and act on it. And that's usually repentance. Because he's going to tell us idols that we need to remove. Or false traditions that we need to get rid of. Or beliefs that are not true. Or unbelief that we need to get rid of. The Lord will tell us how to get closer to him by removing these things from our life. That's faith. Seeking him, seeking his commandment and following on it, following up on it. That's faith. That's how we come to know the Lord. Wherefore, whoso believeth in verse four, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world. Yea, even a place at the right hand of God. Which hope cometh of faith. That is absolutely right. As you begin to exercise faith. As you become more clean, because that faith will be leading you to repent, you have this hope begin to well up in you, that you understand who the Savior is, and you begin to believe even more stronger in Him, and that He can redeem you. And that hope, which cometh because of the faith that you exercise, maketh an anchor to the souls of men which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. And it came to pass that Ether did prophesy great and marvelous things unto the people, which they did not believe because they saw them not. What are these things that they could not see that he was prophesying about? The clues are in the following verses and in the next chapter. And now Moroni gives some commentary on additional insights to faith because he understands the same process that Ether understands. If you want to come to know the Lord, you must ask him to give you the commandments that you can follow that will bring you closer to him. That's exercising faith. Verse 6, and now I, Moroni, would speak somewhat concerning these things. There's those things again. What are these things? I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because you see not, for you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Meaning you've got to work through that process. Everybody's trial of faith is different. Some's quick, some's long, some's Extremely difficult. Some seems a little bit easier and everything in between. It's different for everybody. You're not going to get to those things until you go through that trial and try your faith. 
And here's what those things are. First part of verse seven. For it is was by faith that Christ showed himself unto our fathers. That's the thing. Hallelujah. That is what our end goal is, is to come to know Jesus Christ and to have him show himself unto us. And we do that by faith. After he had risen from the dead and he showed not himself unto them until after they had faith in him. Wherefore, it must needs be that some had faith in him, for he showed himself not unto the world. But because of the faith of men, he has shown himself unto the world and glorified the name of the Father and prepared a way that thereby others might be partakers of the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? It's the same thing as the things that they might hope for those things which they have not seen. Wherefore, ye may also have hope and be partakers of the gift if you will, be, if you will but have faith. So again, the point of tonight is to how do we turn our belief into knowledge? It requires the tool of faith. And what is the knowledge that we seek? It is a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. This is the second comforter that we seek. This is the thing. This is the heavenly gift. This is the thing that the fathers couldn't receive until they exercised faith. Faith unto repentance. I love this chapter. It's so simple, yet it's so profound. Now, there's many other prophets, in fact, all of them, that teach this because this is the doctrine of Christ. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Alma chapter 32 wherein Alma described the same process, but he does it with the analogy of planting a seed. If you have a belief, or if you have only a desire to believe, if you believe in Jesus Christ, or have a desire to believe in Jesus Christ, then plant that seed and see what grows. Planting the seed and seeing what grows is the process of faith. And I hope tonight in the comment period, in the discussion period, maybe we can get some feedback on people on the different seeds that they've planted. But the one seed that is in common with all of us on this call tonight is that we seek to know Jesus Christ. We seek to come back into his presence. We seek to see him in the fullness of his glory. But before we get to there, we seek to be redeemed by him to be cleansed by him, to become literally adopted sons and daughters of his. This is how we get to the truth of who God is. Because when we understand who Jesus Christ is, we understand who his father is also. Last scripture I want to go through tonight is in Doctrine and Covenants section 45, if you'll turn there with me. I would love to go through this entire section sometime because it is jam-packed with the doctrine of Christ and jam-packed with what's going to happen in the, in the coming days. So section 45, we'll start in verse 8, 8 through 10. <clears throat> and I came unto mine own, and mine own received me not. Unto as many as received me, gave I power to do many mighty miracles, or many miracles, and to become the sons and daughters of God. And even unto them that believed on my name, gave I power to obtain eternal life. There's the doctrine of Christ. We receive him by offering him our broken heart and contrite spirit. He makes us his sons and daughters. That's the first comforter. He gives us power unto obtaining eternal life, which is life with him and Father in heaven. That's the second comforter. Going on in verse 9. And even so, I have sent mine everlasting covenant 
the everlasting covenant, which is this covenant. If we offer our broken heart and contrite spirit to him, he will bless us with these two comforters. That is the everlasting covenant, which he sends into the world to be a light to the world and to be a standard for my people and for the Gentiles to seek to it and to be a messenger before my face to prepare the way before me. Wherefore, come ye unto it, come to this covenant. And with him that cometh, I will reason as with men in days of old, and I will show unto you my strong reasoning. For me, that's what the revelation part of this is. When we come unto the Lord and he's reasoning with us, that is when we go to him with our questions and the thoughts and intents of our heart and cry out unto him, Lord, redeem us. Show me the way. Show me what to do. And he will speak to us. He will speak to us through the voice of his spirit and tell us precisely what we need to do to enter that gate and be cleansed by him. Many more important things, but I want to jump to Doctrine and Covenants section 45, verses 56 through 57. Many things go on between that period and between these verses, which is when the Lord shall come again in his glory to the world. You know, so we have some time here. We have some time to get to know the Lord. It's not too late if by tonight you haven't exercised any faith yet. There's still time. The Lord in his infinite wisdom and mercy gives us so many opportunities to repent and return to him. But if we don't, verse 56, And at that day when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled which I spake concerning the ten virgins. For they that are wise and have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived, deceived, verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day. What does that mean to take the Holy Spirit as your guide? It means you seek the Lord's will, not your will. What he says, not what you think is best. And I know that that flies in the face of everyone who belongs to the great and abominable church that doesn't even know they belong to that church because they say, that's the church of the devil. And I don't worship the devil. That's not me. And I say, you might not think you do, but you worship yourself because you believe you can make it back on your own with no help from the Lord. And the devil laughs at that reasoning. He laughs at it. And says, keep on thinking that until I have you in my chains. I don't wish for this lesson to be a lesson of fear. Sooner or later, if you stay on this path, you will feel what Ether felt, which is the desire, the great desire to teach the doctrine of Christ to your friends, to your family, to your neighbors, to the rest of the world. And you're going to hear this teaching come up all the time where people say there is no need for repentance or redemption. We're all fine. Live your own truth. Do what works for you. And we can't give up on them. We can't give up on these are brothers and sisters that are caught in that philosophy. And we can't because the Lord didn't give up on us. And other people didn't give up on us when we said the same dang thing. So we've got to teach him. We've got to teach him. It's not, it's not what you think. It's the only path to truth is to come to the Lord and be redeemed by him. It's not all pain and suffering. It is difficult. But he wants this to happen. He wants you to come unto him. His love is real. This can happen for us and for the rest of the world. And we've got to do our part to get that message out. Let me bear you my testimony to conclude my portion of the meeting. Some years ago, 
I never said I know that Jesus is the Christ. I never said that. But I said I believed in Jesus. I read about Jesus. I studied about him. I heard all the stories. I saw all the miracles. But my testimony of him was weak. There was no strength. There no, was no power behind it because I did not know him. And I don't even know if I can fully know him until that second comforter experience, which I'm searching for. But I tell you what, the evidences that he has blessed me with on the way, as I've sought for his command and to follow his command, that's how I've come to know the Lord. It wasn't that long ago that I started this path. I remember my first pathetic prayer. I was seeking to know who I was before this life and what my mission was. And instead of getting that answer, the Lord said, here's something I need you to work on. And it wasn't something that anyone had ever said to me before. In fact, people had told me that I was just fine and doing great with that thing. I had never heard it. And the Lord said, this is something I need you to work on. And I said, okay. And I started working on it. That changed everything for me. That's happened many times since where I've called out to the Lord and he said, Justin, here's something I need you to do. And now I can say yes right away because I trust him. It always works out, even though sometimes it's incredibly hard. It always works out, and it draws me closer to him. I pray every day and ask for those things. Lord, give me the hard things. I know the hard things are the things that will bring me closer to you. What lack I yet? What idols have I not gotten rid of yet? What unbelief can I switch to belief? How can I get closer to thee? I testify of the doctrine of Christ. And of the everlasting covenant. The true covenant. If you want to know who Jesus Christ is. If you want to be in a position in these last days. To not give up when the going gets tough. Then start tonight. On your knees in prayer. Say Heavenly Father I would like to enter the everlasting covenant. I am willing to offer up my broken heart and contrite spirit. I do not know fully what that means. Please give me the experiences I need and reveal to me the truth I need to understand and teach me what I must do to fully enter into that covenant. I give you permission to do this and to do it starting right now. What I know of the Lord is if you do that humbly, he will answer you. If you've never received a revelation before where you've heard the words in your mind, that's okay. He'll find another way to answer you. He'll teach you how to come to him. This is the Lord that we worship. He loves us. He wants nothing more than for us to be cleansed. And to come to him. And I bear this testimony in the name. His name. Jesus Christ. Amen.